In 1984, Joe Deaver released the first of the Lone Wolf Gamebooks, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnemite in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back, and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys Through Magnemon podcast. Hello, and welcome once again to Journeys Through Magnemon, the official Lone Wolf podcast with me, Jonathan Stark, sometimes known as Zip on the community. And I'm August Hahn, uh, author, editor, lore person, general schlep. <laughs> and a wonderful partner to have on our journeys through Magnamund. <laughs> Where are we journeying today, August? Well, we're going to go to the Jungle of Horrors, book eight. And honestly, one of my favorites. Oh, that's really interesting uh, because... You know, and and of course, I love the whole series, and we don't say a lot of negatives about the series uh, because we're contractually obligated not to. No, because actually, <laughs> because we love them, we really do love them. But of course, we have our favorites. For me, Jungle of Horrors uh, is is one that I didn't play as much. It was one I didn't revisit. But but you, but for you, it's a it's one of your favorites. I just really like the way that the story itself is put together. Uh, not only is it chock full of lore. Uh, and and I'm sure you'll agree there. It, it It is a book. It is very dense when it comes to its subject matter, which is great. Uh, and I really like those those little touches. So, yeah, it's one of my favorites. One thing that I want to uh, mention along those lines is up to this point, we've been avoiding spoilers as best we can. But word has come down from on high that those gates are open. Uh, we're reaching a place in the series where there's so much back lore that uh, we just can't avoid at times talking about spoilers. So we'll try to keep to the book we're on. And if there's big twists within the book, we will warn you uh, beforehand. But this is a blanket spoiler warning. We we will, spoilers lie ahead. Right. And we'll we'll try to re-mention that every episode. But for now, keep in mind, in my opinion, the best way to listen to these podcasts is probably to listen to them either immediately after you've read the book in question, or if you've already read the book in question, because this is like revisiting it. Right. Yes. For new fans, it's a great read the book, then come listen. For old fans, we hope that this feels like sitting on a couch with uh, with two other two other washed up. <laughs> yeah, th this whole podcast should very much feel like a no crap there we were kind of situation. Uh, right, right. All right. Well, uh, with that, let's uh, let's jump in. Sounds good. You are Lone the last Kai master of Summerland, sworn avenger of your forefathers, the Kai lords. To achieve your vow, you must find the lore stone of Orido, known to be hidden in the jungle swamps of the Danag. Guided by Lord Pado, warrior magician of Desi, you set off across the war-torn lands of Telistria on your vital secret mission. But your quest is soon endangered when your identity is discovered by agents of your mortal enemies, the Dark Lords of Helgadad. All right. So as with all the Magna Kai series, the 
Journey's point is to pick up the lore stone. In this case, the lore stone of, oh boy, here comes my first pronunciation. Uh, Orido? Orido. 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 Okay. Orido. Kind Arido. of like a, almost like a Spanish uh, sounding uh, when when you can when you consider the the locations where you are and the fact that this is southern Magnamund, it's appropriate. Love it. Okay, so Arido. Yeah, you've got that little trill to the R. Arido. So Lorestone of Arido. How did it get here? How did it get to where we're going, the jungle of horrors? All right. Well, during the Great Plague outbreak, when the Elder Magi were hastily leaving their domain in the Dinarg. There was a lot of, of, there were a lot of treasures and a lot of lore, a lot of things that they had to leave behind. They were dying at the time, and their retreat from the area left a lot of things literally in the mud, and the lore stone was one of those. And it was given to them by Sun Sun Eagle? He left it with them? Uh, Yes, he chose to leave it behind for, for the same reasons that he left the others in the places where he found them. Okay, and when it was left here, what has its effect been on the jungle? We we know from the title that the Jungle of Horrors is court, sort of this infected, twisted, corrupted jungle, swamp area, but the Lore Stone is an object of good, so... What what has it done? Unfortunately, it could do literally nothing to affect the corruption in the jungle because its power was completely contained in the temple of Orido. So even prior to the corruption, they didn't use this to grow the jungle. No, no. The Lorestone had no direct physical effect on the jungle itself. Now, oddly enough, had the temple not been so successful in its construction, if it had not been able to contain the lore stone as well, I mean, it probably would have been found, but its power might actually have, have combated some of the corruption. I, I like the fact, I, I really enjoyed the, the kind of irony. The one thing that could have purged the jungle of horrors in order to keep it safe, it wasn't able to help any of the corruption. And, and, and they left it there because they just didn't have time to snag it or they were all killed when they... When this happened, this corruption, it, it was a desperate time for the elder Magi. Uh, they they were doing everything they possibly could to survive. And there is the implication that they also knew that it needed to stay where it was. OK, so then uh, maybe this gets into one of the things that that I that strikes me about the book, maybe um, something I wanted a little more of it out of it. we've 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 had this conversation yeah <laughs> yes i i because for me it's like it's a little bit of the journey of horrors <laughs> as there's a lot of emphasis put on the travel to the jungle which is all written brilliantly but really it's only the last third of the book that we we get to this fascinating location the jungle and i'm just curious do we do we know did joe have a, a reason for this? I mean, did he did he plan initially for this to be a, a more of a set piece, the jungle? No, no. And, and as you can see, as you go through the series for Joe, a lot of the books was about the journey. Uh, he, he very much enjoyed overland tales. That's some of that's some of that Tolkien, that Tolkien-esque element in his writing style. Uh, he was he enjoyed getting to the place and having that be part of the story. So you're right that there is a lot of journey in your jungles, 
But in this particular instance, it was absolutely intended. Got it. Okay. So he he did not want to set a whole book. And and you know, I guess I guess if you think about it, it, it does feel like if you did have to do a whole book in the jungle, you might run out of interesting things to say. I mean, how much how much can you how many times can you describe the trees, the swamps, you know? Lone Wolf got a lot of frequent flyer miles on his feet. He went a long, long way. And if you just start each book in the location that he's intending to get to, you have no sense of the journey. You know, you're, yeah, I'm, I'm coming around to this book actually very quickly because <laughs> I'm also thinking now, I'm like finding reasons to argue with myself. Also, you have the, you'd lose that world building aspect. Precisely. The journey is where, especially in this book, where most of the lore comes from the countries that he's passing through, the things that he's encountering. Without that section of the book, you lose a vast amount of information. Including this really important role that this book has to play, which is the setup of the ongoing war. Right. This book is really the first time you get a framework for what later becomes known as the Darklands War. The ale is weak and watery, but serves to quench your thirst. Pedo takes a great mouthful and immediately spits it out in disgust, wiping away its insipid taste on the sleeve of his tunic. Bilge juice, he splutters, slamming down his mug. You should be a sight more careful where you empty your mouth, stranger, growls a man seated to your right. <laughs> let's let's talk about Pedo a little bit. Um, <laughs> just... Because he always seems a little, uh, and I love Pido too, but he seems always a little bit goofy to me. Is that just me? Uh, no, Pido is 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 fantastic in the fact that he's he's extremely skilled, but he's not perfect. He makes mistakes. Uh, there are hints of basically hero worship where where him and Lone Wolf are concerned. He he has this huge backstory that you only ever really get in glimpses. And that just makes him more interesting to me. Pido is a Vacaros. Uh, can you just explain to folks kind of what a Vacaros is, maybe a little bit of their history? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, the Vacaros were an early race of humans. Uh, they were indigenous to the Desai area. Uh, they were first created by Ishir and were very receptive to the kind of magics that were being granted to and through the Elder Magi. Uh, in fact, there was no other uh, subclass or subbreed or however you want to discuss it. Uh, there, there was no there was no other race of humans on the planet that could channel Old Kingdom magic better than the Vakaros. Uh, they came into existence a few centuries before the Great Plague. And really, they were created to preserve the arcane secrets of the Elder Magi. So from their inception they were meant to work hand in hand with the Elder Magi of Desai. Now, you said something interesting I hadn't considered before. You said that they were created by Ashir, and we know that the Kai lords, of course, were created by Kai. So that's Kai is sun, Ashir is moon. Does the, do the Vakaros then worship the moon more than the sun? Are they, are they more nighttime powers? Uh, not, not in any kind of focused way. Uh, they they certainly venerate her, and, and they know through their own lore that she was their origin. But they are not, by their nature, they're not really worshippers. 
so much as they are what they were meant to be, which is warriors, scholars. Uh, they tend to be very studious, but also they were meant for a physical role, and they embrace that. And that role is to carry on the the elder magi who are in the Klein. Uh, correct. Yes, they they are basically both successors and protectors of the elder magi. And are they thriving? Are the Vaqueros? Because the elder magi we know are kind of not thriving, and as as uh, you know, they're they're dying out. Oh no, they are absolutely thriving. It's what they were meant to do, after all. Uh, physically, they are far healthier uh, than the magi. Uh, they are not in decline at all. Uh, but their uh, their if successive generations are a little healthier, a little stronger, a little smarter. So they're thriving. And one thing I've noticed about the Vacros is this is this is like the first time that you really get to meet a Vacaros and get to understand them. But the the development, the deeper development of the Vacaros doesn't seem to happen until more recent products when they became this popular player race in the RPGs. And so my question was, I know you had a hand in in kind of writing those RPGs alongside Joe. How much of the Vacro's powers were developed by Joe at this time when, when Jungle of Horrors were published? And how much was created by later authors and collaborations? I would say it's almost a 50-50. Uh, Joe had a very clear he had a very clear vision of what he wanted them to be and, and how he wanted them to exist power-wise within the story. Uh, and you see that by the fact that uh, Paido does several things during the book, and not just this book, but but later one. Um, and, and so you have that you have that element of what they can do. But Joe also wanted it expanded. And so when the RPG came out and when successive stories were written, I, I would say about half again as much lore was made. Now, do you have a favorite aspect of the Vaqueros? Like you personally, I mean, you worked with, with Joe on some of that, that lore and those, you know, abilities that they have. Do you have a favorite I piece? I mean, I, I love blue steel uh, and we'll we, we may get into blue steel more, but but basically that's their enchanted metal that they use as a focus. And I, I love that aspect of them because the most common form of blue steel object is a blue steel sword. So that speaks to their their militant mindset and their purpose that they are warriors for the Elder Magi. But my personal favorite has to be Virok Mastery which is the fact that they can bond with a Virok, which is a form of Ikatar, basically their own breed of giant eagles. But that was cool. I, I read about that in the um in the RP the recent RPG, the the Cubicle 7 one and the Virok stuff. It kind of blew my mind. I, I just pictured these guys coming in on a a fleet of flying eagles with yes, their blue steel swords raised high in the sky. And and I also, by the way, yeah, the blue steel sword is it for me. I, I love those blue steel swords. <laughs> yeah, they they actually and it was through their their working with the Elder Magi that blue steel was invented. Uh it's it's an it's an alloy. And it's basically a magically created alloy with all the elements ah. of steel plus um it's suggested that it's Shianti crystal and cobalt. That's oh. where it gets the blue sheen. Oh, 
okay. So, the, so the Chianti Crystal, there's these are rare then, because that is that is a that is a very limited uh, resource. Uh, yes, yes. Um, now, it, it, but it, but it also need to keep in mind that the Chianti didn't really invent their crystals so much as they imbued them. So, uh, as the Chianti pulled back away from the world, there are these caches. Got it. And and there's one such cache in Desai. Got it. Okay. And and did they discover? So the Elder Magi deliberately created the Blue Steel Swords. It wasn't an accident. No, no. It was. It was in fact created. It was created, but with through the uh, the cooperation with the with the Vakaros, and then they perfected the process. And see, I think that image of the Blue Steel Sword that's so appealing to me is it's the they are the fighter mages that. I feel like I always wanted to play in early Dungeons and Dragons and it was always just not a good build, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> they, they basically are. And, and I'm not certain I can't speak directly for this. Uh, I'm not certain of, of how it relates to Joe's first experiences with D and D. But in basic and expert, the old red and blue box sets, um, there was the elf class and elf because early on the demihumans were classes as opposed to races. Right. And if you played an elf, you played an elf and they got some armor, they got weapons and they got spells. Yeah. This was like in the old days, if you played a halfling, you had to essentially be a thief class. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the el elves were how you played a fighter mage, and and so I always see a lot of that early form of elf in the Vakaros. Ah, uh, got it. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, because I remember trying to play a fighter mage in I think it was second edition, and it was just so difficult. The multi classing and you your were limits on armor. And yes. Yeah. You were never good at either is what happens. You were a bad fighter and a bad wizard. <laughs> <laughs> but the Vacros aren't like that. The Vacros are really great fighters and great wizards. It's like it's the class I always wanted to be. Uh, yes, yes. It, it's not only is it, I think, one of the most popular of the uh, of the roles, as we call them in uh, Lone Wolf Adventure Game, uh, but it is definitely one of the, the most uh, the most popular non-Kai roles to play. They are interesting in relation to the Kai because they are soldiers for good, but they feel a little less, uh, what's the word? A little less organized, maybe like, like they're a little bit more individually left to decide what good is rather than all living at a monastery and being sent out on missions. Uh, right, just, right. Yeah. And the reason for that has to do with the fact that they're trained throughout to decide they're, they are, they are lumped into colleges. But they, those are colleges. It's multiple locations right. throughout the Sai. So they're, they are a little more individual. They're, they're trained by different people in different places. So they have a, they have a much greater chance to become individual as they, as they grow and expand their power. And do we know much about Pido and where he went to college, uh, where, where he was, where he came out of? Uh, he's kind of a legend within the the Vakaros themselves he's almost their lone wolf so to speak he's not necessarily a chosen one but he's well respected 
and in fact, he was famous enough and, and considered uh, powerful enough amongst his fellows that he was the one selected to escort Lone Wolf. That was almost like a, an awarded position that he was given. Okay, so and this was a question asked by Francis Legault on the on the Facebook group was, yeah, why was he chosen? So it sounds like it was a matter of his honor, his 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 position as a as a mythical figure almost in the back. He was rankings. very distinguished. He distinguished himself because he was defending a number of border forts during the Basagonian raids. Uh practically single-handedly saving uh, Fort, Fort Mukdar. Okay, so he almost had his own Lone Wolf series <laughs> going on before Lone Wolf. And he's now an, he's, he's an kind apex of that... predator amongst the Vaqueros, yes. <laughs> Pido, Pido's fate, he, he, he does not pass in this book, but there is this trend we see, right? With people who travel with Lone Wolf, they don't meet great ends. Uh, yes. It's almost like the hint is in the name Lone Wolf. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't it, he, he's not called Friend Wolf right. or many companions. Wolf. Come with me if you want to live. Wolf. Come yeah, with e me. exactly. <laughs> 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 the man looks up from his book, his gray eyes suddenly aglow with a terrible red fire. Trost screams. His face has become a mass of horrible, erupting boils. As he falls to the floor, Pedo strikes, his sword a shimmering lance of blue steel forged by the Elder Magi. His attack is lightning fast, but the necromancer counters his blow on the edge of his blade. So maybe this is one of those things that you were talking about that kind of excites you for this book, is we start off with that classic, there is a object of great power. It's it's in a temple, in a jungle. It is it is sealed. You have to go find it. And there's all this lore to why it's there. Okay, so there's two ways to go in in book eight. You can approach the jungle via this river journey, or you can take a, a an overland journey. And I'm curious, wh which way did you choose, August, as a kid? Oh, Overland. Overland. Okay, I got why. I want to know why. Because boat. Avoid boat. Boat bad. Right, right. I, you know, why did I, I, now that you say that, I don't know why I chose, <laughs> I don't know why I chose the river barge. I, I You know, I maybe it was because it was the more, it felt like looking at the map, it felt like the more direct route and I thought I would run into less bandits. Yeah, no, it, it makes absolute sense. For me, honestly, it's just the fact that uh, I still remember my first real death in these books. And that was getting crushed to death by a mast. So boat bad. And and that that honestly has informed every water-based decision I've ever made in Lone Wolf. And that that explains why I didn't catch that because I started on book fourteen. I I was in. I did not start with the early books. I didn't read those till later. So, so you were I, never traumatized by the Death Fleet. No, no. It, it was one of those things. Yeah, it didn't get pounded into me until I was an adult and was just thinking, "Oh man, water is really not your friend." No, I I mean I realized while rereading the book for this podcast that I had taken the Plains Roads so rarely, maybe never. 
I must have taken them once because I remembered a couple of the things, but I'd forgotten everything about them. So when I took them this time, it was like a brand new book. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I completely understood. It does. It does change a lot of the story. Uh, it basically just completely uh, it completely alters the overland travel at all, because if you take the if you take the water route, first off, it's a shorter path because you're right. You, you make the right decision there for your reasons because you looked at the map. And it seems and it seems more direct. And it kind of is. You go through fewer sections if you take the water route. Well, and I love those sections in Lone Wolf going back to, you know, the one that I remember most now is book three, where you're told, you know, choose your route wisely. Look at the map. I love those sections where it incorporates the map into the gameplay because the maps are beautiful. I don't know if we've talked about that before, but they are gorgeous. maps. Uh, yeah, we we have talked about that before, but it, it, it definitely bears repeating. The maps are are not just beautiful and they are beautiful, but they are also integral. Uh, Joe worked them into the gameplay numerous places. Uh, later on, there's even an entire riddle that you can't solve if you don't look at the map. Right. That's true. And and we've seen that before in book five as well. Yep. Yep. There's another one there. The books are ah. the books are, are re- remarkably tied to every element of them. And the map's just another one of those elements. Well, let's talk about some of the things you can find on this journey. Sure. Um We'll just call a few of them out that I wondered about. There's these fat monks. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious, what what are these guys? Like, what order are they? I mean, I want to be part of the monk order that worships gluttony. Because that's it says they're fat because they, like, worship gluttony. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't say they worship gluttony. It just says that, that like, like, some monk orders here on Earth, they indulge themselves. Uh, they're wealthy. They don't answer to anyone. Their their church doesn't judge them. So why not eat all the food and drink all the wine? Do we know who they worship? Uh, yes, they're actually part of the Vaderish branch of the Ashiran church. Okay, so it is it is still worshiping Ashir. Yes, yes, they are. Though, and this is kind of a a look behind the scenes. Um, it is quite possible that at least one or two of them have slid over into the influence of a different divinity, uh, specifically Karoshnit the, the Carnal. And is wow, okay. And I don't that I that one I don't know. Uh, Karoshnit, Karoshnit is one of the five dark pentad. They're they're the, the five lesser gods of evil who serve Nar mostly because him big, they small. She's the only uh feminine aspected uh divinity in the pentad and specifically she's karoshnit the carnal she is the 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 goddess interpretation of giving into vices uh succumbing to temptation uh lust uh, passions and it is very possible that one or two of these monks have have slid a little in their devotion towards her so okay, that and that kind of brings up another question about these other gods in Magnamun. It sounds like there are more than just Kai, Ishir, and Nar. Uh, were these gods here before? Well, I guess Kai and Ishir and Nar were like eternal, but are there gods that are native to each planet, like Summerland gods that that only have power there, or is it is are all gods sort of? you know, have different aspects on different planets, but they're all like the same pantheon. 
Well, there are two pantheons in the, the universal setting that is Aeon. Uh, that's the, the pantheons of light and darkness. Uh, it's never really discussed as to whether there are world-specific gods, but there are there are probably aspects and, and different namings. Uh, like, Kai exists throughout the, the pantheon, throughout the universe. But he probably isn't always called Kai on individual worlds. So speaking of divinities, there are signs throughout the books of characters that don't belong to Kai lords or they're not Vakaros. They don't belong to an order, but they exhibit powers. And it's really fascinating to me is how many of these are sort of out on their own. And Tadia is an example. This is this character in this book who is a seer. She's an oracle. And I'm just curious, do we know where her power comes from? Well, there was a significant number of, of humans, uh, and Radarin, for that matter, but in this case, we're talking about the, the humans. Um, they are gifted with magic, either passed down from their ancestors or gifted to, to them through interaction with the gods. Uh, some of them have a direct tie either through uh, genealogy or imbuement to the Elder Magi. Uh, and they, some of them have magical powers, many of them are prophetic. Uh, and Tadia is clearly an astrologer. Uh, it, it's noted in the it's noted in the text, and uh, she reads the future in the stars. Uh, sometimes prophets like this assemble into an order. Like there's an entire fortune telling group in in Magnamund that uses special cards, uh, or like Tadia, there's the astrologers. The it's the astrologers of Veretta. Okay, right. And is she is she part of an order? Then no, she's on her own. Yeah, she she is on her own. More, it, it's far more likely for these individuals to be on their own. They're not necessarily shunned, but they have no formal training, or they just prefer to operate on their own. Tadia is Tadia's kind of a hermit, and I really love this character. She she's given a lot of description and depth in a very short time to the point that I've always wondered: Do we know what happens to her after this book? Well, that's something that Joe did in a lot of books, and it, it's something that I really appreciate in his, even his side characters don't feel like side characters. Right. They they, fe they feel like characters in their own book, uh, and a page from their book fell into your Lone Wolf story. Yes, that's so well said, August. I mean, there's this character later on uh, who you meet, you can meet, who's this map maker, and, and there's this yep. wonderful scene where she's crying because... You know, the, she was remembering how they went to the jungles of horrors. I think it was her and her father and her father yeah. got killed there. And it, you can actually find the beast that killed him later on. But there's this, there's just this, you're, it's a very, it's just one section. It's one section yep. with her. And you really, you do feel like you stepped into someone else's story. Yeah, a, a page from her diary became part of your lone wolf story. Right, it's it's true, and in this case, Tadia is absolutely one of those characters, and, and she actually has a continuing story. Uh, she helps her people during the Darklands War. Okay, so maybe we'll get to that in a in a later podcast then. The long-haired Gorkas stoically haul the barge upstream rarely faltering as they tread the rutted and potholed towpath. Beyond the bank lies an incredible array of colourful wildflowers, scarlet langpetal, 
Yellow pod looms and violet mellow roots of towering proportions. The colorful fields give way to rolling acres of grassy plain, and gradually the sky grows darker until just a slender streak of light fringes the horizon. It's not long before a roll of thunder echoes across the plain. The other path now that you can take, the uh, the Jonathan path, <laughs> was the barge. Floating, floating down the river, yeah. And like you said, it is shorter. Uh, it's memorable. There, There's some really interesting things that happen here. And actually, there are some items that pop up here that I've always wondered about. But first, I have a few, a couple esoteric questions. One, my wife does not often ask questions, but this one is in honor of my wife. She loves the flora and fauna of Magnamund. And this is one place they actually mention a few different um, flowers like lank petal, pod looms, mellow root. I just had uh, to ask. Yellow pod looms, yes. Yellow pod looms. And she loves flowers. She loves, and she loves, like I said, animals and flora and fauna. Do we know anything more about these? Well, there really isn't a lot of information about them beyond just the colors and sizes that you get in the text itself. Like the fact that lank petals are scarlet, pod looms are yellow, uh, mellow root is violet. Uh, they're, some of them are incredibly large. Like the blooms on a mellow root are, are wider than your hand. And you get the fact that they're also, they're quite odiferous because in the section you have, the, their scent is a lingering odor that pervades an entire cabin. So that's about really all we know of them, aside from the fact that it's noted that they're relatively common uh, in Telestria. It's cool because in part it's his, it's his naming conventions. They, they spur imagination like mellow root, like, okay, that's a very, that's a really descriptive name that maybe tells you about maybe the root is a used in medicine for calm, you know, or it's a, uh, a calmer, you know, pod looms. Okay. Well that kind of pulls up an image of like these pods, uh, lank petal, maybe it's a drooping flower. It's just very, I always loved his naming, his naming systems. I, oh, I, I struggle I, I to come up with names like that. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, in fact, when I was, when I was reading these as a kid, I always assumed I had my head cannon and this is just head cannon from me. This isn't anything confirmed <laughs> by, by Joe, but in, in, in my head, I always thought that pod looms were the, were these big, almost cage like flowers where fireflies would lurk. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So, I love so that. At, at, at night they looked like these little flickering lanterns. Oh, man, that's what they are now. <laughs> I mean, there you go. You are welcome to that. <laughs> well, speaking of things that get named, we get these three drinks, and I just wanted to quickly ask about each one. You get Farina Nog. Tell me, for each of these, how is it made? What does it taste like? How much alcohol is in it? And just quick on these. Okay. Well, uh, like in the novelization, the rotting land is, is where is where most of this is going to happen because you don't really get much in the text itself. Right. Again, Joe liked to name things so that people could either headcanon them themselves or he could touch on them in later books. But we do get a little bit of a description um, in the in the, specifically the Legends of Lone Wolf book, The Rotting Land. And, okay. Uh, I'll just I'll just go ahead and I, I mean I'm I'm not Ben, but I'll do a little reading here. Okay. It goes, uh, we've got three. 
The Farina Nog will put hair on a maiden's chest. Strong stuff, that. <laughs> the Chai Cheer's a bit niftier than that, though it'll give her a beard and probably sideburns, too. Then there's the Boar Brew. Well, that'll drop her dead in her tracks, that will. Although she, she'd, she'd not be in a maiden any longer by the time she landed. Tends to have that effect. Oh, very good. You know, I, I got to give credit where it's due. Like, I know that it's a, it's a split subject amongst fans, you know, John Grant's uh, Legends of Lone Wolf books, but he had a way of okay, describing things like that, that is perfect. It says so much and so little. I do. He pulls out these gems every once in a while, and that is a gem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I enjoy that one. I can I can quote that one. I I did have to go back and look at the text a bit, and and I may have trimmed it a bit for 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 vocalization. But yeah, that's almost word for word what's in the book. Well, we'll leave it at that because that that's pretty great. Yeah, it was it was it's pretty solid. But that but that there is really the only description we ever get of these drinks. Okay, so we never find out how boar brew is made. Not specifically, no. Okay. Uh, it, it is a, it is a long-standing rumor that they put boom powder in it. Right, right. And and that's quite possible because we have we have alcohols on our world that are actually brewed with a bit of gunpowder. Right. Although the, it could also be right that fact that it just knocks you on your butt. Exactly. That, yeah. It, it, it must be explosive, right? I mean, it blew me away. Yeah, that kind of thing couple other items here i want to go over real quick uh the silver box of valborg the enchanter what the heck is this like what does this do who's valborg how did count conundrum which great name how did he get (laughs) i know right i I love the name count conundrum um i'm gonna have to use that as a as a character name at some point yeah but all right so so valborg the enchanter he was a legendary telestrian wizard and he hailed from rich bloom in Western Telestria. Uh, he was an alchemist. He was also incredibly wealthy. Now, it's said that he, that he hid his treasure in a crypt that was defended by the most powerful spells he knew. And when it was finally raided successfully, one of the treasures that was stolen was this box. Got it. And do we know what it does? Not a thing, except be extremely expensive. Okay, so if you if you get this box, there's no use for it in the series. It it doesn't have any kind of of special properties that that ever come up. It's just uh, it's just a legendary a piece of art from a legendary wizard's tomb. Man, my inventory was carried was full of these things. Like <laughs> right, right. I mean, <laughs> basically, basically, it's Gandalf's snuff box. I mean. <laughs> it, 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 it's associated with a great wizard, but it has no other properties. Oh, I love that. All right. Couple others. Uh, this question is actually from Mark French on the Facebook page. Is there any history to this gray crystal ring? Okay. Well, the gray crystal ring is is an, an interesting piece of note because it, it seems like there'd be a lot more, a lot more to it, right? I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a fascinating piece. It's well-constructed. It's almost alien in the way that it's made. But its origins are completely unknown. It's not a unique item, however. There are multiples of them out there. And basically, each one gives powerful psychic protection. Okay. Uh, And I'm going to ask this a little bit in advance of book nine. But there is a ring in book nine that's a psychic ring. Is this the same kind of thing? 
it, it is not the exact same design, but it is very similar. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. One more thing on the barge, not an object. This is a person, but uh, I, I know who I know who you're going to ask about. You know, I was going to kind of leave it to be a surprise for folks, but so many people asked about him, including Colin O'Hare from our Facebook group. Uh, this is the the Kizor, the necromancer. And I know from the text that he's a renegade of, oh man, Morgoreth? Morgoreth? Morgoreth. Morgoreth. Okay, close on that one. Yeah, Morgoreth. Which is a center stronghold. Centers, we will talk about more later, but essentially these are the plague the plague wizards and they're evil. Yes, they're, 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 the, they're the centers for disease control. The centers for disease. I, you've been, how long have you been waiting to say that? I, I actually made it a meme like four years ago, but, but I, I, I always carry it in my back pocket for when we talk about these guys. Oh, that's good. <laughs> always got a center in your back pocket. We don't know a lot more, but I, but there were a few questions about him. Is he an outcast from the centers? Yes, yes, he absolutely is. Uh, after he took over the the sect that he was part of, he tried to usurp the power of Kedak, and uh, that didn't go well. Oh, right, after that, Kedak after is, that, is around right now. Yes, of right, course. Right, Archdru- and Kedak is around, and um, yeah, after he failed to usurp his power, he was rejected from the Brotherhood. So he's is he here because he's fleeing? Yeah, he's he is on his he is on his uh, on his own. He has no power base other than just what he's been able to, to to barely drag together himself. And so, yes, he's specifically on the barge to flee. Now, this deity he worships, da- Dazudskull, or Dazudskull. Uh, Dazudskull, yeah. It's not a divinity, actually. Okay. It's the name of the founder of an underground Senneries cult interesting that was unexpected i did not i thought for sure this was uh uh another dark god but it's uh it's actually a a uh, like a priest uh yes very specifically a priest who has died several times and returned from the grave it's almost like dazud skull was joe's uh tribute to liches interesting does he ever show up in the books? Well, he's a renegade on his own, uh, and he does eventually join with the Dark Lords directly. But you won't see him... You might see him mentioned in passing later, but he never personally shows up. Oh, man. And this this gets to that thing. We always talk about this, but again, just how there's so much going on outside of us. Again, pages from other people's diaries. Precisely. You you could write an entire book about Kazur. It, it's obvious right. that he's he's been through some stuff. Right. These aren't throwaway like characters. These are big names. Uh, wow. Did not did not never knew that. Never knew that. Just what one more thing to to say that this podcast has taught me. Now the interesting thing about Kazur specifically is that he is not a center druid. He's a center shaman. Oh, okay. And center shaman or shaman, that one, that one depends on your location as to how you pronounce it. But center shamans, they're adepts of extremely destructive right-hand magic, just like the druids, but they're more like battle casters. They, they wield dark war magic and they're even trained in swordplay. 
Wow. Okay. So they're so, al- they're almost like a dark reflection uh, of the Vakaros. Right. And and, it, and I'm guessing he's less focused than on the chemical potiony alchemist side and more on this magic side. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Th- that is that is absolutely correct. He is he is more of a practical caster. And he wields battle magic and he can use a sword. And they work they work hand in hand almost like the, the Vakaros do with the Elder Magi. The shaman or shaman work with the druids. Okay, so there's not a schism. This isn't a the representative of a deeper schism between the no. sires. No. Okay. That they are, they are very specifically the battle casters of the center druids. Well, always always learning new things on the podcast. That's what we're for. That's what we're for. Gradually, the tall, straight trees of the Mordrill Forest thin out, giving way to twisted trunks and stunted saplings as the land sinks deeper and deeper. Imperceptibly, the forest ends and the swamp begins. The ground is softer, and tall black rushes appear in clumps around misty pools of stagnant water. From tortured husks of trees hang thorny vines, as tough and as cruel as sharpened steel wire. All right, so we're coming to the jungle now, the actual jungle of horrors. And uh, longtime fans are going to wonder why we're skipping. There's a particular section. It involves a dark lord and a temple. You might be wondering, why are we not covering that now? Uh, It has nothing to do with spoilers. It's actually because it's such a big topic. We want to save it. Uh, for another episode where we'll get a chance to jump really deeper into what's going on in the Darklands, what's going on with this war. And we are going to talk about it, but not in this episode. We're going to jump into the jungle. So we just wanted to let folks know that we know about it. Yes, we will talk about it. There's been some great questions asked of us about it, but we got to save it for a time when we can really go in depth. Right. Trust us. We noticed Nag in, is involved in the book. Of course he is. But he is such a big topic that that if we discussed it here, this podcast could be three hours long. So then let's jump right into the Denarg, which is the in-world name for the Jungle of Horrors. And I want to start off with a great fan question this uh, this was about the Denarg, how it was a fertile place after the defeat of Agarash. So we know it wasn't Agarash who corrupted this. So, you know, what transformed the jungle? Well, in a way, it wasn't necessarily it. It was transformed, but not in the way that most people think. Uh, the jungle itself is artificial. Uh, it was created and maintained for the most part by the efforts of the Elder Magi, uh, sustained through their magic. So its its corruption and decline occurred because they left. Okay. And 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 so before they left, it was this beautiful what arboreum? Uh yes. Uh, as the again, as the novelization goes, uh, it was a rich and fertile paradise. Uh, an enchanted garden of earthly and spiritual delights, at whose heart they built, like a diamond in a jeweled setting, the Temple of Orito. Okay, I think I'm putting this together then. So they leave, and it's not that there's some corrupting 
um, force. It's that things move in. Uh, yes. Now, it is very possible that the Great Plague is accelerating this rot, but it starts to rot because it's no longer being maintained. Uh, so the centers and the plague, the plague settles here, monsters settle here. It's just kind of becomes this uh, wayward house or, or house home for wayward evils. Precisely. It's important to also know that the, the Dinarg is a crater. Rivers flow in from its slopes towards the center. That's why it becomes a mire, why it becomes a swamp at its heart, because there's nowhere for the water to go. And the temple survives because this was another question, but now it makes sense. The temple survives because it's just a beacon of of good. So these creatures, these plagues, they just can't get into it. Precisely. It's a holy place. Uh, specifically, it's the holiest place that the Elder Magi ever created or venerated. Now, a couple again, people- Im- oh, go ahead. Im- it, well, it's also important to know that the build that the temple itself, the building is made of Corlinium. And we've discussed Corlinium a little bit before, I think. Yeah, just as a reminder, it's essentially the the strongest metal or one of them on Magnamund and also has this property to sort of repel evil. Right, right. It is a, it is a holy metal. It is innately blessed. And its aura is completely unbearable to anything that's evil. Uh it even held it even held at bay the corruption carried by the waters of the Denark, which is why the temple itself is completely untouched, whereas everything outside it was starting to rot. Now, do we know why the dark forces... Oh, wait, no, that answers that, really. If it's Corlinium, the dark forces can't assault it, right? Right, right. They can't... Even even corrupted normal, like, natural beasts, once they're driven to the point where they would attack the place, they can no longer get close to it couple other things uh because there's a lot you can encounter in this jungle in this jungle of horrors uh there's this disease coravax and ah yes yeah i couldn't remember for the life of me where you get infected with this i actually couldn't find it when i was reading but i know you can die of it uh what (laughs) (laughs) you you absolutely can yes um very specifically, it infests the soil of northern Tel- Telestria. Okay, so it's not just in the jungle. No, no, no. You can you can catch it just about anywhere, anywhere above the jungle and in the upper lands of Telestria. And is it related to the centers at all, or is it a natural disease? It's a natural disease in its base form, but the it was specifically the the Dazzled Skull sect that planned to use it to kill everyone in Telestria. So they improved it. There's that connection. Yep. Now their, their plans were thwarted, and, and the, the most virulent strains of the newer, deadlier disease were destroyed. But the basilisk is, is still abundant in the soil. So it's... And it spread. It's not as deadly as it was when, when the Dazzled Skull sect first improved it, but it's still quite deadly. Well, a few more questions about the jungle. I mean, I, I will say that Joe does a wonderful job of once we get to the jungle describing it. Maybe that's why I always wanted more of it. It felt like this huge area to explore. I'm sure Lone Wolf and Pido didn't want more of it, uh, but yeah, but I, I, I did. Think, I think they were done. 
they were, they were done. done. <laughs> but but some of the most interesting things about it, and these are the things I want to focus on, are uh, the monsters. They are really interesting, just like in Castle Death. And there's just a few that I wanted to ask about. First of all, I was noticing that by reading some of the supplemental material from the RPGs, that many of the creatures from the swamp are the results of experiments by the Nadzarenum working for Dark Lord uh, Manashka. Manashka was primarily a, a military mind. He, he is, his arts are more war and, and physical confrontation, uh, which means that he was constantly asking his Nadzarenum to make new troops. They, they created new soldiers of various forms. And one of those, the Zlorg, were aquatic troopers. Okay. And the Anafeg were specifically made to be anti-cavalry. Got it. Okay. See, and I love this because ever since the Kai series, you do feel like you're not encountering the Dark Lords quite as much, which makes sense. You've left that, that kind of battle arena. It'll come back, but you've left that battle arena and you're exploring new lands. But I never knew before that this is really dark lord stuff you're touching on here you get you're fighting their creations uh yes and that's the same anywhere you go on magnamont after all the the dark lords are tasked by nar to defeat not just summerland but the world after all the whole point of the eternal struggle is to conquer uh, magnamont it's the last world that's contested and there's so much good information in these bestiaries, and I, I, you might not be able to answer this, but I know fans have asked, uh, is, are these bestiaries, these Cubicle 7 ones in particular, are so brilliant. They're so well laid out, and I don't think they're available now even as a PDF, but is there any chance that they will become available in the future? I certainly hope so. Uh, I really enjoyed working with Vincent and Joe putting those together. And now we've got we've got like five past years of new creatures to add to them. So right. I do I do believe that they're going to be coming back. Uh, we are uh, currently working with the process of trying to get the uh, the newest version of the Lone Wolf Adventure game into production. When we do, we will update these B-series. Absolutely. All right. Couple couple other questions. And one is about the ragu. I, I love these dudes. They have a uh, amazing piece of art in the book. It's like these. It looks like these two old goblins just taking a taking a sauna. <laughs> <laughs> I love that art. I love that it, art. Yeah, yeah. They they do they do sort of look like they they really just want to talk about their their gout and and complain while they while they smoke cigars. I know one of them's pointing at you as if to say, boy, bring me my towel. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, put, put another ladle on the, on the stones. It, they, they, and they're, and they're very dangerous, but they don't look it at least not at first. No. And, and I was surprised uh, only recently to read again in those RPG bestiaries that they are agarashi, which, which I really took to be mostly lizards or insect kind of looking things, sometimes demonic, but these were very humanoid. And I wondered if they, you know, did humanoid agarashi, is it just a coincidence that these look humanoid or is this, uh, is this something that was like a merger of the two species? 
Uh, no, these these are absolutely Agarashi because the only the only prerequisite to being Agarashi is that you're you were created of Agarasha's dark will and his dark power. But Agarasha's imagination, when it came to to perverting all life, was definitely not limited to both insects or okay. reptiles. Because okay. there's all That's kinds of things out there. Yeah, that explains a lot, actually, because you see, like, horse agarashi. That actually freaked me out. I don't like those. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. No, they're really weird. And you see, yeah, a lot of lizards and insects. Okay, so it, that makes sense. It He was just creating out of the dark recesses of his mind. Right. The Raghu are probably mockeries of what he considered humans to be, which were which were these these slovenly, disgusting creatures. And my last question comes about this, my favorite monster in the jungle. It's this trap predator that looks like a pond of clear water. And if you wash your hands in it, well, not so great. But there is this interesting line about this creature, uh, again, in supplemental material, which it says that they only exist in the Dinarg and the Lakuri Islands. And I, th- they're so far spread apart. I just was curious, what's the connection between these two places that this monster exists in just those two places? Okay, there is actually a connection. For the most part, it's it's not merely coincidental. Um, there is the fact that there is a connection between this place and the Lakuri Islands because the because Lakuri housed a terrible artifact that was related to Agarash. And it's well known that the, the relics of, of Agarash, what few are still out there, tend to draw Agarashi to them. Is this connected to that uh, the graphic novel? Uh, there, are, there are enough themes in the graphic novel that I'll say yes, but not directly. Okay, okay. So another object of Agarash that maybe we don't find out about. Precisely. Uh, what what you get, however, is that the, the Korkuna, which is the, the Agarashi that you're talking about, uh, the Korkuna, they could be scattered in multiple places, like any of the Agarashi. Uh, one, of the, one of the aspects of the Agarashi is that they can survive virtually anywhere. They're sustained by their own dark power. So they can wander into virtually any environment. No biome is closed off to them. But they are drawn to these areas of power, essentially. Right, right. And, and there, are, there are no geographical barriers that will stop them. So just even the fact that, that you have these, these, wildly di- these wildly diverse areas separated by hundreds or thousands of kilometers, that won't stop them from being in both places. Do they crawl? Do they fly? How do they move? <laughs> do they catch an Uber? Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. They, they they call Uber. Just don't just don't share one with Lone Wolf and you're probably fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, in, in this particular instance, they may simply just manifest through dark power. Ugh. If a pond suddenly appears in your backyard, don't don't wash in it. Hard pass. As you fight, the skeletal Vordax succeeds in driving its black steel sword through the side of the ship's pressure tank. A blast of liquid gas hisses from the hole, freezing the Vordak in its petrifying spray. 
From above comes a stream of blue fire that ignites the escaping gas. There is a flash, and in a fraction of a second, the flying ship is transformed into a colossal ball of flame. All right, well, we fit a lot into this episode, but there is a little bit more to cover. August has told me that he's got an in the margins from us. Take it away, August. All right, so the Jungle of Horrors is... The setting is 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 very unique, and it's it's not even the kind of place that Joe visits very often. Uh, the reason for that is because Joe himself hardly ever got to visit that kind of. And I used the term biome before, but but it's appropriate here. Uh, Joe was fascinated by jungles, uh, but he rarely ever got to visit anything like that. Uh, Joe was very well traveled. Uh, he traveled to multiple continents. He he took multiple vacations uh, whenever he got the chance. And so he he went to a lot of different places. But one place that he was very fascinated by and he never really got to visit in depth were jungles. So the, the reason for the Denarg and for the way it was set up uh, was because it was a place he always wanted to visit and never got a chance to. It, I guess that also feeds into a little bit of my earlier stuff where I said, you know, you don't get a ton of the jungle. What you get is great, but that makes sense. He was writing what he knew. Right. And in this case, he was writing something that he wanted to know better, but just had never been able to personally visit. Well, that is a fascinating piece of behind the scenes. I love stuff like that. And uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that, August. No problem. Just a little a little tail end of lore for for all the fans. One one more question. This has come up multiple times in the forums and over the years. And I figure this is our chance to answer it. What who would win between an equally ranked Vakaros warrior and a Kai Lord? That's again, probably a call. It would depend on the focus. And because just like a Kai Lord, uh, the Vakaros have a number of abilities that don't directly help them in combat, but are important for what they do and what they are. So if one assumes uh, equal rank and an equal amount of focus in the combat arts, my money's probably on a Vakaros. That's interesting because I was going to put my money on the Kai Lord for some for some of what you said, because the Vakaros seem to be built for companionship, like protecting companions, like they have this skill Puros, which really heals companions or sanctuary, whereas the Kai Lords are, seem trained for solo, you know, missions, solo combat, almost like boss killers, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I was almost leaning for the Kai Lord. Well, but remember, um, this also is this would also assume that you're not just fighting a Vakaros. You're also fighting his giant eagle. Oh, right. Right. And and I guess now could animal control disrupt the eagle? Uh, no, no. And in fact, that's that's part of the ability that once bonded with a Vakaros, it takes something of greater than their own ability to break or alter that bond. So animal control can't necessarily, you would have to be a higher rank to even have a chance. Well, and I will say, if we've learned of one weakness of the Kylords, it's air attacks. <laughs> they, they do not have air superiority. <laughs> exactly. And, and especially in the earlier ranks, the Vakaros have the benefit of magic. And their, their battle magic closes the gap pretty quickly. 
So maybe what it is is that a Kylord can progress far beyond a Vacros warrior's old, you know, top power. Precisely. There, there comes there comes a point where the Vacaros have a have a, a like a boiler cap, where this is as powerful as their elder magic can get. And it is rare, as we've seen, for a Kylord to survive to Grand Master status. Right. Yeah. Even even before the fall of the monastery, there weren't that many of them. Well, it, it sounds like uh, it, it, we we don't have necessarily an official answer, but may, maybe we'll have to do some some death battles sometime. Set up some uh, <laughs> some versuses and see see who would see who would win. Go into it in greater detail. So, do you have a favorite part in this book? Do you have a favorite scene? A favorite scene. Um, Honestly, I don't think I do. I I just, I really, really enjoy the book. But I'm not sure that there's any one particular place. Um, And that might just be because I think a lot of the notable bits happen on the barge. And that wasn't the path I took. That that is true. Yes. When I do think back to this book, I, I tend to think of the barge. I, I really think of the the Kizor because he's very memorable. Count Conundrum, because it's like I always picture, you know, the Count from Sesame Street telling me riddles. <laughs> he is. <laughs> and uh and of course Pido has some great moments on the barge that really settle uh kind of solidify his character. I think, you know. A lot of folks online talk about the ending of this book being really kind of an eye opener. It does not end on a great happy note, a triumphant note. I think it's the first book that doesn't end on a triumphant note. It is not the only book, but I think it is. It's the first time in the series where that happens, where where you're you're happy just to survive. And I think that is on purpose. I mean, everything Joe did was on purpose, but it, it, it does speak to what's coming because the next few books they are not triumphant uh and you can feel the dark forces closing in around you oh right absolutely because you're you're about to hit the cauldron of fear and that that book that's got some nightmare fuel in it yeah cauldron which is what we'll be covering next time is really the i don't know it's it's the the natural progression of the themes from this book, which is, I'd say those themes are that you are not safe. There are no one's just going to let you gather these magnetized stones and not take their own actions. And you're running out of time. It's a time feel really. You are running out of time. I've always, I've always contended that cauldron of fear. A lot of its tone is based on one of Joe's favorite books from that particular era which was the black cauldron. Uh, I I've, I've all act that answers a question that I was going to ask in that book. Cause I, yeah, I mean, I, I love those books. My son is named after Taryn uh, or right, well, that's right. the American pronunciation. Sorry, everybody who is Welsh, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it's the one we went with, but yeah, I'll say it, Taryn. It works. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I, I've always contended that, that he, he drew a lot from that, including the title. That, that that it was it was a pay on to the black cauldron and and you can see the themes when we get to that book it'll all be clear 
and in school because it is not actually a cauldron uh, in the way you no. would think of. And, and yet the name is perfectly evocative of where you are and what you're doing. Well, hopefully that leads folks uh, um, chomping at the bit to, to get to our next episode. That is, I hope so. That is definitely coming next month. And we are excited to go into the darker, the beginning of the darker books in the series. But until that time, we will wish you well. And as always, for For Summerland and and the Kai. Thank you for listening to another episode of Journeys Through Magnemite. We hope you've enjoyed this revisiting of one of fantasy's longest running series. The music you're listening to now is Forged in the Sun, a new musical track from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, whose mission is to create music inspired by the Lone Wolf series. Visit brotherhood.rocks to get more awesome music from them. The opening music for the Lone Wolf podcast is composed by Ed Hicks, and incidental music comes from Alexander Nakarada. Visit his Patreon and become a patron to receive royalty-free music for your own podcasts and other audio projects. Hell does you, don't mean nothing to me, you're nothing at all.